Hello there, space fans and members of the space flight community. Wishing everyone a very healthy and happy new year. Today is January 5th, 2023. It's great that I get to say that because I'm going to be mistakenly right 2022 for the next two months. Looking forward to that. Thank you for joining us again for this new year and uh, continuing to listen to our podcasts and using our app and reading our stories. Very grateful to our subscribers, readers, and listeners. Starting off the new year by having one of my favorite people on the show, uh, a, a good friend and colleague, David Brown. David is the author of one of my favorite books, The Mission. That's not the full title. And, uh, but uh, welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much for having me today. David, you are a space journalist, journalist, and author. You've written for the New Yorker. Uh, you write, write for the New York Times. You've uh, contributed to a ton of magazines, including Supercluster, and constantly impressed by your on-site and embedded work. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show today to start off the new year is because I think the big story to kick off this new year was your piece in the New York Times, where you joined SpaceX in Mission Control. And we'll get to that. That's a very exciting. It was one of my favorite pieces that I've read recently in the Times. I'm glad to see that you were the byline. Over the past few months, I've seen you've been up to some other adventures. So I wanted to start there um, because you did a piece in the New Yorker, I believe it was end of November, right before Thanksgiving break. Uh, thank you for that, by the way, called Journey to Doomsday. <laughs> Beautiful way to start the holiday. David, you went down to Antarctica. What part of Antarctica? Because I haven't been anywhere close to that place. So this was this was my uh, second expedition there. This time mm -hmm. I went to, I was on the um, western coast of the continent, what's called Thwaites Glacier, which is called the Doomsday Glacier. Mm -hmm. because it's currently undergoing unstable activities, I guess you could say. And, and that destabilization is allowing scientists to better understand how these glaciers are collapsing, uh, both there and across the continent. Your piece was very in-depth. There's no way I could get into all the details on this podcast, but if you could underscore a couple of things you learned from that expedition, what would they be? The main thing that, that I certainly came away with was just how difficult it is for these field researchers to do their jobs. People tend to think that all the data that are collected for Antarctica to study climate change and rapid sea level rise is all done with like NASA satellites, right? We just assume that orbital spacecraft are doing all the heavy lifting. But orbital spacecraft, are, except for imagery, are pretty useless if you want to study the ocean, right? They can only right. penetrate about a millimeter into the water. And what these scientists are trying to figure out is how is hot you know, warm ocean water being sort of mainlined into the continent, destabilizing it from below. And the only way to do that is to actually put sensors in the water physically. The problem is, particularly with, with Thwaites Glacier, is, is that it's probably the least accessible place in the world. And that's right. the place that we most desperately need to study. So being out there, being cut off from society, civilization, we had no internet, we had no way of knowing what was going on back home, we had no we, we were our own little universe, and we were out there, you know, surviving by our own intuition and, and uh, right. a little bit of luck. The, the work that they do is very hard, very brutish work. It's, it's right. blue-collar work, and it's, it's impressive as hell. Well, do you think you'll be heading back to Antarctica anytime soon? There is no power on this earth that will ever get me back to Antarctica. Wow. Twice is enough for one lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I Most folks go there just the one time, and it's intense enough. <laughs> you have a uh, another book coming out soon called The Outside Cats. What's that about? So 
the word soon, I think we could put in quotation marks. My goal is <laughs> okay. to have it finished in 2023, and hopefully it would it would then be published in 2024. But let's just say that that's notional right now. The Outside Cast is actually about the the researchers. Are, it, one of the researchers that I went to Antarctica with this most recent time, we were there. We left, or we boarded the icebreaker boat on January 3rd of 2022. And we returned um, at the beginning of March. It was quite a long, quite arduous expedition. His lineage comes from the University of Texas at Austin, where their their Institute of Geophysics has basically pioneered a way of mapping or are doing the geophysical map of Antarctica to understand what's going on beneath the ice. Mm-hmm. And they've, they have recently, well, I would say in the last couple of years, completed what you could say they completed the geophysical map of Antarctica, which is akin to mapping the human genome if you think back you know they've completed the mapping of the human genome when i was in like grade school if i'm not mistaken and only in the last few years are we getting like targeted gene therapies and things like that and and so the same process is going to happen with antarctica right they they have the geophysical map they have the ability to understand what's going on with the ice uh, where where it touches the ground but it's going to take a long time to to, to properly incorporate all of that into models and to to get a better grip on how and where and when you're going to start seeing collapse in Antarctica. So this book is about the scientists at Texas who figured out this extraordinary way to do business in Antarctica by building this ad hoc international team of researchers. And it's quite frankly, stumbling on that adventure was one of the great moments of my life. Wow. That sounds really exciting, man. That sounds like it to be a thrill. Well, uh, keep us updated on the publishing of that book. I, re- I remember bugging you before the mission about when your book was coming out a couple times, you know, you did that for about, you did that for about seven years. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it came out eventually. <laughs> I think it was worth the wait. Okay, David, let's get, you know, I, I, I love starting the year with a conversation about where spaceflight is, where, where the industry and the community stands um, each year. And I thought that you know, using the context of your recent piece in the Times and your visit to Hawthorne, I thought we could kick off that conversation. So first off, the article that you did for the Times, was that your first time visiting SpaceX in Hawthorne? Yes. Yes, it was. Wow. Okay. And what was your initial reaction to just like being there? Have you been there? Of course, you've been there before, right? Yes. Okay. Then you know exactly what I'm about to say. So I've been to just about every NASA center in the United States. I've been to every trusted NASA partner like APL in the United States. I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And I, I have seen Mars rovers being built. I've seen pieces of Europa Clipper in clean rooms. I've seen SLS at various stages of development. I've seen the Orion capsule being developed, the rocket engines at Aerojet rocket dime. So I've I've seen some things right. in the space world. The first time I walked into Hawthorne to SpaceX headquarters, I was absolutely stunned. I have never seen anything like it. It, it occurred to me, so I had to show up because, of course, whenever you're doing, a, whenever you're covering rocket launches, you, you're you're stuck on that horrible rocket launch schedule. So I was there yeah. at four o'clock yeah. in the morning, and I <laughs> yeah. walk in, and it is it was by far the busiest, most extraordinary shop floor i've ever seen in my entire life I, it was i call it a casino it, because it's it, that's it's like a 24 <laughs> 7 it's beautifully stated so it's 4 a.m i'm in there this place is packed and they're just turning wrenches on rocket engines they're mm-hmm. they're 
the things that they were doing were just unbelievable. And it, it only hit me about a half hour into it. It was like, wait, this is four o'clock in the morning. These yeah. guys are working like it's two o'clock in the afternoon. It was just unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it in, in all of the American space program. And I came away from that visit completely convinced. There, there's no longer any doubt in my mind that we are absolutely going to Mars. We will, within our lifetime, I'm even going to say less than 15 years, there will be a human being on the surface of Mars. Because th what these people are doing is so extraordinary that there's no way they can fail. It's a different vibe there, and it really does make you a true believer when you're there. It's it's like Star Trek when you walk in there, and the 24-7 vibe of it all really convinces you because mm -hmm. people are unwavering in that mission. A lot of the people on that floor are there because they believe that they they are part of bringing humans to Mars. It's extraordinary. I have to agree with you, and uh, I'll always remember my first visit. For me, it was a little emotional. I watched the booster come down for the first time at LZ1 in 2015. And um, oh, wow. that, bo that booster is in the parking lot now. So like reuniting mm -hmm. with that booster for me was a cool moment. And like I said, if you ever have the opportunity, many, many of our listeners work in the space industry. You know, if you work in the industry, try and get yourself in there just to check it out. SpaceX is actually open to tours and things like that. It's a beautiful place, just some pop culture. I believe it was used for the set of Iron Man 2 and a bunch of scenes. And there is an Iron Man suit and other pop culture suits and, and th props from movies in the entrance. Is that still the case, David? I know they've done a bunch of renovations. Yes. So, yeah. so the Iron Man suit is there. There's a Cylon there from, from the Cylon, yes. Galactica remake. Yeah. That's On the, awesome. uh, they, they, in, in that hallway, there's also a, uh, where their server farm is that they have mm -hmm. the Skynet sign. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. And they like yeah. And they embrace the, they embrace popular culture. David, in your art article, you called out the mean girls reference during that mission. Um, let's jump into that the article a little bit more. One funny thing I need to mention is this quote. Journalists typically are not allowed in the room where SpaceX guides its rockets to space and back to Earth. This is how the space reporters started their 2023. And I thought it was very funny because we're a small community and uh, we, you know, we do battle for access. It's something that you know, we can be candid about. But David, when you got into the meat of what you were there to report, Give us some color. Like, what was the energy like? You were there for Crew 5, and that mission was, like you said, it was in your article, a lot of other things were happening. Other launches, there was a launch at Vandenberg. When you started observing in the mission control, what's some things that stood out to you immediately? So, well, several things. First of all, there was, it was a series of fortunate events that that, that allowed the, the thing to happen at all. Um, it took months and months and months of back and forth to get me in that room. Wow, And it just so happened that a series of cancellations and delays with the rockets aligned everything so that they would try to go for that 31-hour launch cadence. Mm -hmm. So when I got there, I, yeah, I took a quick tour of the facility when I got there just to get the lay of the land. And then we, we got into mission control. The first thing that struck me is, first of all, it's enormous. It's like mm -hmm. the size of a, I don't know, almost like a movie theater, except you, you like those really tall ceilings, right? Okay. Um, except it, it, the screen projected in front rather than being a movie is this status of various spacecraft subsystems and different camera views of the rocket and the interior of the rocket and the interior of dragon and and uh, the astronauts you know when they were boarding and so on and so forth the room itself is utterly silent 
we picture, or I pictured anyway, that there would be kind of chatter, what's going on, hey, check a look at this, or just like a little banter. There was none of that. It was people, everyone, I, I believe that there were uh, 24 consoles there, if I'm not mistaken, and everyone had triple monitor workstations. So when I say that people had 20 windows up, and they were flipping back and forth nonstop throughout the day, you think you compare. have a lot of tabs? No, these people have right. tabs open. <laughs> yeah. it, it, truly, they do. And what they're doing, I later found out, is they're compared. They were comparing, you know, previous launches to what they were seeing with the rocket at any given moment mm-hmm. to find any anomalies. And if they find anomalies, they they have like an internal chat software that they send that they would message different engineers to, hey, is this cool? Is that not cool? Do you notice anything? And so on and so forth. And so they would do that. And the room was really hot. Like that also struck me. Like it was really warm in there. So I don't know if that was super, if that was because there were computers or because it was just body heat from anticipation. I'm not sure what it was, but it was pretty warm that day in that room. I don't know why that's a, something that stuck out of me, but it, I always imagined it to be very cold. So yeah. warm and quiet. And another thing that we, usually when we see mission control on television, right, it's like when there's like a Mars rover landing. And right. it's people like celebrating, hooray, we just did a, an amazing thing. Right. But it was, in fact, the exact opposite. Um, it's more like a, a quiet, subtle, people are sitting at their stations. Because you can sometimes see it on the live stream. There's not much visible energy that no, you can see. No, these people are, there's ice water in their veins. They are mm-hmm. 100% focused on making sure that everything is nominal and constantly comparing data throughout throughout the launch process and the separation and the, and the landing and no, if there's chatter, it's like quietly speaking calmly into a microphone, mm-hmm. un- unintelligible to anybody next to you. And they have multiple radio networks that they could talk to. So I don't know, the, the fluid systems people can talk to the fluid systems people, but they can also talk to the wider net that anyone can talk to the person running the show that day and so on. And on the third floor of SpaceX, there are more engineers that they could talk with to get, to drill deeper down into uh, the various subsystems. It is a, if you did not know that there was a launch happening, like if it wasn't on the screen up ahead, and if there weren't people behind you cheering, because outside the mission control, the the walls are basically windows. And everybody who actually built these rockets and built these, you know, built the the Crew Dragon capsule, they're watching their work go yeah, to they're space. Standing, yeah, they're space. standing right there yeah. behind you, which is pretty crazy. And they're, and, and they're, you know, they're doing the countdown, 10, 9, 8, and they're cheering whenever it goes into space. But in mission control, it's totally silent. If you did not know that they were launching a rocket, no. you, would have, you would think that they were accountants that right. were just doing payroll. I mean, it's, it's that kind of just quiet, meditative state in there. Now, let's talk about the operational side. One quote from your article that stuck with me. Reusable rockets on rapid launch cadences are now so normal that it is hard to remember how absurd the idea once seemed. And this is so true. I recently celebrated eight years working in the space program. And I I remember those days very, very vividly. I'm sure David does and other journalists too. There was a time where it was ridiculous to even think that the landing of the rocket would work, one. Two, that they would be able to relaunch them. And now we're on like a 15th recovery, 15th relaunch. Like we're, we're, we stopped with the milestones. Like I stopped thinking about it. I forget that these rockets used to just be one and done. And that quote really stood out to me. Uh, David, any more color on that? Any more? Is this milestone just, does it prove something about SpaceX's vision? A lot of people say, come on, man, Mars is 
ridiculous. It's crazy. Like you said, seeing is believing. Does this quote speak to your thought that SpaceX will achieve their goals? Certainly. So one thing that I see among second rate, second rate journalists is this sort of idea that our reasonable rockets were inevitable. Like, well, of course they, they're doing that. That we, we that was always going to happen. And that's oh, not that's, the case. That was oh, never that is, going to be the case. Oh, that makes me angry. And it, and it, <laughs> it absolutely outrages me because I've been yeah. watching this, you know, just like you unfold over the years. And we can look at the, the, the various other would-be rocket launch providers who are unable to do it successfully, certainly on, certainly on orbital flights. But I will say that yeah, I, I was talking to John Edwards, who is there at the head of their Falcon rocket system. And he was saying that when this first started, the idea of reusing a rocket was unsettling to to people who were paying to have their payloads launched into space. Mm-hmm. But now what they're seeing is launching on a reusable rocket or a reused rocket, a rocket that's flown six or seven times, is mm-hmm. actually a benefit because they've yeah. been able to work out all the kinks. They know for a fact that this rocket flies. This thing is flight proven. Just yes. like, would you want to be... Would you want to be on the first flight of a new airplane or would you want to be on the 30th flight of a new airplane? And that's that's kind of where they're getting right now. And, and it's I, cheaper. I, and it's cheaper. Yeah. Um, in exactly. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that in the years to come, it will probably be cheaper to be the first launch than the 30th launch because that seems like that would be the riskier of the two. That's right. how far we've come. One thing I found interesting about your article, and this might just be me, and I might have just missed this because I don't watch the SpaceX live streams anymore, um, except if there's crew <laughs> or Starship. I'm actually going to be at Orbital Starship, hopefully. So I saw that you you quoted uh, Gerst, William Gerstmeyer, who used to be at NASA as a human spaceflight. You named his title as the Vice President of Build and Flight Reliability. That is the first time I've heard William Gerstmeyer have the title that Hans Konensman used to have. And I'm guessing that uh, because, you know, when Gerst left NASA, it was controversial, and then he was picked up by SpaceX immediately. He says that when you are sending people into space, you cannot err. I've been through two tragedies in my past career on both Challenger and Columbia. Those are devastating to me personally. I don't want to ever experience that again. Now, some people are going to be upset with me for saying this. This quote stood out to me because this is coming. Would you agree? And I'm not speaking about SpaceX. I'm talking about the industry and commercial spaceflight, human spaceflight, the expansion of human spaceflight to ESA, international partners, Chinese, Russia, everywhere. An incident is coming. And David, you know, with what Gers says, do you think an incident is going to slow things down like they have in the past? So, so it's very interesting that you that you ask this because I've I've been sort of working on a story about this, and and here's my concern: after each of the space shuttles were destroyed in flight, either taking off or coming back, there was approximately we'll we'll, we'll round it up to say there was a two year grounding of the shuttle fleet each time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Apollo One had its, which it wasn't even a which wasn't even a launch, it was just it was a test. rehearsal when we lost. Yeah. Right, just a test. When we lost astronauts on Apollo One, there was a slightly less than two-year stand-down on the Apollo program. Now, the U.S. government can sustain that kind of pause as a launch provider. Mm-hmm. The question becomes, can a private company, because inevitably they would be grounded, 
They would right. certainly be grounded by NASA. They would certainly be grounded by the FAA. I'm, I imagine there would be congressional investigations. It would be a big deal. The question is, could a private company sustain or endure through two years of being unable to make money launching people into space? I think the answer is probably not, unless there is an extraordinary amount of money backing this, this, this endeavor and an incredible amount of confidence that they will come out of this uh, better than they were before. It is coming. And we're going to find out when that when that day happens, we're going to find out just how sustainable private space flight is right. for launching human beings. And and as you mentioned in your article, the finances of SpaceX, a private company, aren't very well known by the public. So we don't know how close to the line they are when something like a disaster happens. And that goes to for every company, Virgin, uh, Blue Origin, we're going to see what happens to the market when we have an accident and that doesn't have that doesn't mean human death that means all kinds of incidents Blue origin lost a vehicle not too long ago without crew on it there's lots of factors that play into human spaceflight and it's in the safety and risk assessment of human spaceflight and a lot of it is not you know directly losing humans there's lots of components to that one thing that i found very interesting you said in your article that there is a hierarchy in mission control now you know, during these missions, you were uh, in mission control for Crew 5. It's hard to believe, my God, that SpaceX is on its fifth crew mission for NASA <laughs> um, already. You mentioned a hierarchy in mission control during the operations of these flights. So for NASA-funded missions to the ISS, I, I've had this question asked to me a, a bunch of times, and it's been something that's been discussed in the community, but who is in charge during these missions, during the operation of the spacecraft and during the flight to the space station? Now, you clearly stated here, for NASA-funded missions to the space station, a team in California, not NASA, owns and operates the capsule during flight. There's one launch director for F-9 and four mission directors for supporting the -the round-the-clock Dragon operations. Now, that will be a surprise to many folks. Because I think that during these NASA crew missions, this is, you know, the everyday person, the civilian, you know, you're watching a live stream by NASA and you're assuming that, well, this is a NASA launch as NASA astronauts. They're using SpaceX's vehicle. But that's not the case here. Right, David? SpaceX is yes. they're being an operator. They're being the NASA. Right. During this flight. That is absolutely correct. Yes. They are every step of the way. They are they're running the show now. Of course, NASA has an interface with with everybody there, right? Um, and anybody can push the push the stop button if necessary. But it's the equivalent of a rideshare. NASA is just hiring a driver to get them to space. Uber, Uber for space. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. One of your last quotes in the article: "This feels like the future." Are we here in the commercial dream that we imagined for you? Do you think that we're becoming too commercialized? Should it be handed over? Like, what is your 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 outlook on this NASA versus SpaceX? Because we, I mean, we, the big discussion now is well, SpaceX is the contractor to bring the NASA's first astronauts returning since Apollo to the lunar surface. Is there a point where? You know, SpaceX is going their own path. NASA is going their own path. NASA is obviously funding a ton, a ton of money to SpaceX for these programs. But is, you know, given political lockup, yeah, we we're said goodbye to Shelby this week. Thank God. Is there a world where SpaceX trucks on to, toward Mars and 
NASA has to sort of like put their astronauts on the mission? Or does SpaceX still need NASA as a leader to get them there? So what's interesting is SpaceX doesn't need NASA, but NASA needs SpaceX for a Mars mission Mm -hmm. by virtue of the fact that all of the money that basically NASA is buying a ride to the moon through SpaceX. SpaceX is able to use that money on a target agnostic launch system. What that means is all the money that's being poured into developing Starship to send people to the moon is basically paying for the development for going to Mars. Mm -hmm. I believe fervently, I have no doubt about this, SpaceX is not making any secret that they're going to Mars. And if you're NASA, right, you can't sit that one out. The day that SpaceX announces we're launching next year, do you think NASA's not going to write a check and say, and we're going to fill it with astronauts? Of course they are. Of course they are. The risk of missing out on that would be so great. You know, they have to be involved. So, and because, and and that would also be quite, we will know when that's, when they're ramping up because they're going to have to preposition an extraordinary amount of fuel in Earth's orbit um, in order to actually get, in order to actually get to Mars. So it's going to be a, it's yeah. a slow process, just like they're deploying Starlink satellites very quietly, but very methodically. I have a feeling mm-hmm. that they're going to do the same thing with fuel and orbit around Earth. And that's how yeah. we're going to have a good idea that they are definitely Mars bound. And I do think that NASA is just going to get on board because they don't have any choice. I think that SpaceX is driving the car right now. And NASA, NASA can have its moon mission if it wants. Right. That's like a That's just throwing NASA a bone. But SpaceX is making no apologies about what they're trying to do. <laughs> it's funny that's you know we, we've got a couple minutes left here and i wanted to end talking about europa clipper and that's just another example of a mission <laughs> that was supposed to launch on sls because of pork and now you know it, it's on falcon heavy which david you you, you know we kind of all saw that coming <laughs> to some degree <laughs> but it's here and that is just another example of SpaceX sort of having to pick up the slack around here, to say the least. And David, where where are we with Europa? Obviously, you're still tracking the mission. I'm not even going to ask if you're doing I'm not going to put you on the hook for a follow-up book, maybe a podcast or an article, a really good article oh. in, the New, <laughs> New York, in the New Yorker or, or, or something. But I, I, I'm sure that I'll be rubbing shoulders. You know what? At that launch, we got to drink like two or three bottles of wine for, for sure for sure i'm guessing you're still tracking the mission and you're you're you know you're talking with your scientists and is everything okay on that front I, i've obviously heard not heard much since your book promotion sure things are things are going great progress is being made they're still targeting it looks like they're going to make their launch window in 2024 right. it's going to be an extraordinary sort of mission i mean they're all, all engineering endeavors have their have their surprises and, and Europa yeah. Clipper is no different, but but they're able to adapt and overcome to whatever they find. On the day that it launches, I extracted from the team a promise that I could sit in the VIP section and I would not cover the launch. Oh my <laughs> I, God. I've, uh, I, I just want to sit there and enjoy it because the, it got enough years of my life. I'm going to take that day off. <laughs> you know, man, you, you, you earned it. And uh, I'm sure some of the journalists listening are like, yes, this bastard's not on the field. <laughs> We're going to finally <laughs> get some access around here. David, I'm always in awe of your work. I, I've always liked your work because you're you're in the field, and that's something that I love to do. And um, I've always loved reading your work. You've contributed to Serial Cluster generously. Thank you for that. And uh, you've been a good friend to us. 
And um, I'm excited to just like continue reading your work. I'm very jealous uh, of the writing in the Times and the New Yorker. It's it's fabulous. And you've got uh, such great prose. And being the film and television person that I am, I hope to see something on the screen one day that was written by David Brown. Please let us know if that ever uh, happens or if you want us to help, you know, make that happen. I think we need to see a David Brown adventure on the on the silver screen. Well, stay tuned. Stay tuned. You'll get something. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, David. And uh, have a happy new year and we'll catch up with you soon. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for having me today. It was an absolute pleasure. 